Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. My first guest today is Scott Sanders, Chief Executive of Link Cymru, which provides affordable homes and nursing care in South Wales. My second guest is Emily Rose Jenkins, a geotechnical engineer with Transport for Wales. We'll talk about the future of housing, the future of travel, and how those two might combine. We'll explore how different generations can work and live together to support each other. And I'm going to get some top tips on how to influence someone who on paper is more senior and maybe even more powerful than you. Let's get to the conversation. Scott, Emily Rose, welcome. Thanks, Ollie. Hi, Emily Rose. Really pleased to be here. Hi, hi, both. Thank you for the invite. I'm really looking forward to this. Of course, both joining me from the wonderful country of Wales. Scott, I wonder if I can start with you, Chief Executive of Link Cymru, but tell us your first ever job. How did you get started? Let's turn back the clock. We're turning it back quite some way, if I've been brutally honest. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I left university in 93, and my first job was actually, well, it was coming into uh, a difficult period of the market with property, um, and it was very difficult to find a job. So I, I did find a temporary job as a land scout. Uh, and I literally, yeah, it was with a private Spain company and they pretty much gave me a map. This is this is how long ago it was. Gave me a map um, and told me to go and look for land for quite an unknown retailer at that time called Aldi. Ah. Uh, and so I went out and about for days on end trying to find parcels of land which would be beneficial for them to have startups in, in Wales. And, you know, I, I do look back and think, well, it's a fantastic opportunity. But these days, you know, surveyors have all the technology available to them to do it from their desk. Whereas <laughs> I was sent out days on end with a map in hand, desperately yes, trying got, to find land. I know. got that image of you maybe with a coat hanger or something, as if you were dowsing or something. But, Absolutely. Uh, fact. So a, ch- a chartered surveyor, you've spent an, a, a chunk of your career working, you know, for services which absolutely are, are in the service of so many people. And I know Link Cymru spans so many different things from care homes, nursing homes, also to housing as well. But can I just make an observation, Scott? You do quite a bit of volunteering. You're trustee of several organisations. Why is that important to you? And how do you how do you make the time? You know, I thoroughly enjoy my work, the volunteering outside of the business. I like to, A, keep myself active and B, try and offer up some of my experience to other people. And I just think doing it in the sort of the trustee capacity is good for me and it's good for other businesses. There's there's a huge amount of charitable and third sector businesses in Wales and they are really important to the infrastructure. And I just think it's a good chance for people like me and others just to offer something back by way of insight or guidance or experience, which can help help these sectors to grow and to contribute more to the economic and social standing of Wales. Let's talk a bit more about Link Cymru, two main sides to your work. Just paint a picture for us very briefly so we get our heads in it. Yeah, so very briefly, we've got four and a half thousand homes. We work across 10 local authorities and we have about 600 staff. So reasonable sort of mid-size, I suppose, for business. You're right, there are two distinct parts, one being the nursing home aspect of the business uh, and one being the general housing development and community regeneration part. But I suppose the, the important thing is they're all trying to achieve the same outcomes, which are that people can live prosperous lives, that people can enjoy the environments they're in, and that they receive really high quality services from a trusted 
business. And that's that's what we're all about. You know, we're a not-for-profit business. So whatever the accounts look like at the end of the year, if there's any surplus, that then goes back into the business to help us prime more investments in new homes, new developments, or new services to contribute to what we see is really important, which is um, a prosperous and healthy Wales. I get the impression, though, despite you having a significant footprint already, part of what's on your mind is the next phase of building and development. Are you uh, planning the construction of more? Oh, definitely. We, we do see ourselves as a, as a growth business. We have a pipeline of 2,000 homes over a sort of nine-year period that we're working to. They're all types of homes. Some of it's very much addressing the immediate situation that we're now facing during COVID and coming out of COVID, which is around homelessness, huge amount of street homelessness, huge amount of overcrowding as well in Wales. So we're, we're very much working in that area. The older person's population is, as we are aware, sort of expanding situation, people living a lot longer. Let's look at the stats of 1% of people born in 1908 lived to be 100. And now we're talking about one in three children born today living to 100, you know, and that means you can see society being there a lot longer. So we need to make sure that we are certainly keeping people healthy and allowing people to enjoy their lives. So we're doing a lot in the older person's provision in that respect. And then there's other aspects. We're just about to go into homes for sale, which once again is important. It's like slight diversion, you might think, in terms of the type of business we are. Some of it will be low-cost home ownership, mm. so people who, who can't afford to own outright. But there will be aspects which are outright ownership, and any profit that comes from that comes straight back into the affordable housing business to help do more again. So yes, it's quite a quite a breadth, I suppose, of, of yeah. I mean, yeah, to, to to say the least, that's really interesting. Um, can I cast your mind back to uh, not not particularly far, actually, as we're recording today in June, to the pandemic of 2020? What was the toughest thing about leading through that period, Scott? We certainly got hit very quickly. Not all housing associations have the same uh, makeup, and we're one of probably four or five that have a reasonable amount of nursing care provision and older persons provision. And that certainly hit us quickly because, as we've all seen in the media, uh, what was going on with, in terms of people over the age of 70, people who are more vulnerable with underlying health conditions. And straight away, we found that our nursing homes had to work in a very different way than they've, they've ever worked before. We had to adopt a very different leadership practice than we had before in terms of probably being a little bit more directional than we were, less consultative, more directional, because we needed mm-hmm. to follow the guidance that's coming out on a daily basis and changing on a daily basis in terms of what safe methods of work and practice were okay from Public Health Wales and Welsh Government. We needed to communicate differently internally, so we had a much more quick and dynamic cascade of, of communications. So we were putting out comms on a, on a daily basis to staff about what was changing. We had set up a website specifically for all our customers about COVID and what was changing in those services. Yeah. I was doing a video every week to all staff to make sure people could see me and to hear what was going on. And we had board bulletin briefings every week. So it was very much more sharp and agile, which in yeah. itself you know, helped. I think beyond that, what else did we learn? Well, we learned that it was critical to ignore hierarchy. So mm. the business is going through quite a lot of change anyway. I, I've been chief executive here for two and a half years. We're going through quite a lot of change in terms of modernization of systems and everything else. But the big cultural piece we were looking to do was around removing hierarchical decision-making and allowing the right people to make the right decisions when needed. And the crisis just cut through that straight away. And it just made that so simple, cut out the noise from the business and allowed us to, to make those simple decisions at pace. That's fascinating. So 
How do you think the pandemic has changed your style of leadership? Well, it probably converts to, to where I thought I was going to be because I've always been quite a consultative leader. I've always liked to make sure that we have enough voice and, and explore enough things as a collective before reaching a position because I do think ownership of ideas and, and the future journey has to be from everyone rather than just, just a single leader. But in this instance, it actually meant we needed to cut to the chase a lot more. I did have to alter my my approach a bit more in that regard, but hopefully with a you know with a soft soft edge, because um, it was a time when people were worried anyway, and what they did need to see was the leader suddenly becoming dictatorial. But what they did need to see was decisions being made. You know, I think that was a, still a collective position all in all. Yeah, I, I want to ask you so much, Scott, about your role, and of course we're going to meet Emily Rose very shortly. Um, what you're doing is about far more than bricks and mortar, whether it's in the social housing, in the nursing homes, it's so many other services besides. And I just want to get your sense of where that's going. You've got such an opportunity to build, to evolve. Give us a sense of what you think the future of housing ought to look like. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a really interesting one. I mean, prior to prior to COVID anyway, local authorities were under significant, or still are under significant financial pressure to make savings within their environments and they've had to make millions of pounds savings every single year which has meant you know the decisions they've had to make about what services they can run and i do believe that the housing association sector because it is nimble on its feet has, has been a good partner to local authorities and helped to absorb some of the services that may have otherwise been provided by them in the past so I think we are stepping into spaces that perhaps others can't stay within, which I think is a positive. But some of the big hitting changes beyond that are definitely within the zero carbon agenda, which I know Emily Rose will, will definitely have no more about than I do, but will tell us about it soon. Because the housing within uh, Wales is, you know, probably some of the oldest proportionately in the UK. Mm. And we have a huge job to do to make sure that we can retrofit our homes to reach the zero carbon agenda that's been set by Welsh government. That in itself is going to be tricky, but we have to collaboratively as a sector, not only procure all of that, that work in a really smart way to get value for Wales and support the SME sector, the foundation economy in Wales, that's a really big ticket item for us to get right. Mm. But to get into that retrofitting, because the poverty agenda is still very much at the top of our list as well. We have to play a stronger role in making living in, in homes more affordable. Then for new build, the target by Welsh Government to become zero carbon is, is much shorter. I think it's down to about 2021 for new build with public subsidy. And we have gone into that quite heavily as a company. We do a lot of modern methods of construction. So we've built a passive house uh, type of well, this is a good point to, to pause it and bring you back in uh, soon, Scott. But welcome, Emily Rose. Lovely to welcome you to The Lens. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Um, I want to hear what being a geotechnical engineer involves, because that sounds pretty cool, I've got to say. But before I ask, what was your first ever job? Where did you get started? I've only been out of university for about four years, so very new to the game. So after graduating from Cardiff University, my master's in applied environmental geology, I was very fortunate enough to go on an industrial placement with Network Rail. So that was kind of my kind of first insight into the industry and into being an engineer. So yeah, it was kind of very um, nerve wracking, almost been introduced to the railway and kind of the experiences that I had, not only being like a railway engineer, but a woman within our sector as well. So 
yes, it definitely kind of opened my eyes to a whole kind of new world from university. Engineering can seem like such a huge, all-encompassing word. What does it What does it mean in practice to you for a listener that might be tuning in from a bank or some completely removed industry? Yeah, so engineering, I think um, people kind of have a preconception of what engineering means. For me, I didn't really go down the route of doing a typical engineering degree. Like my degree was in geology, so very kind of something that people might not kind of associate with engineering. So yeah, I think for people listening, when you think of engineers, it's not kind of this kind of one way of of, of building, it's kind of a lot more. I mean, I'm a geotechnical engineer, so that's predominantly working with kind of the natural environment, looking at ground conditions, you know, and it, it's so much interface between that, but it's also kind of understanding that engineering is kind of software engineer as well. So it's kind of a massive picture to what engineering is in everyday life. Yeah, so just so I get it straight, we are talking about constructing things, building things, but yes. very much within the context of the natural environment. In other words, in practical terms, understanding how to minimise risk, where to do things, where not to do things and so on. Yes, definitely. I know Scott would probably agree as well. When, when you build houses, you've really got to understand what you're building on. So my job really kind of understands those conditions beneath ground surface, which you can't really see to your eye. Why engineering? How did that enter your mind? How did it get onto your radar? I'll be honest, it was a bit of an accident, I'll be honest. I didn't kind of go to school, university, thinking I really want to become an engineer. It kind of developed as um, time went on in university where I found myself enjoying being almost like a historian to, to geology, where I kind of kind of find out to why things happened, what it could mean to the future. And for me, it was almost thinking that being an engineer and constructing has such a significant positive impact on the local communities where people kind of overlook maybe potentially what it means that the services that we provide, but it's huge through um, active travel to kind of the railway infrastructure. It's a massive remit where you can give back really a good thing to the local community. That's fascinating seeing your work in context and I'm going to come on to the future facing aspects of that. But for now, tell us about Transport for Wales and the role you play. So yeah, so Transport for Wales is a relatively new organisation. So we purely exist to drive the Welsh Government's vision of a high quality, safe, integrated, affordable and accessible transport network to the people of Wales, in which they are proud of. We are kind of delivering the Welsh Government's vision for a sustainable transport system within Wales are set out in the Welsh Government's strategy for the prosperity for all. So mm -hmm. it's basically about decarbonising the network, how we can provide a sustainable network to the future generations. And when we talk, Emily, about that network, we're, yep. we're talking railways, roads, cycle lanes. What What's in, what's out? It's everything and anything. Um, so a lot of the time at the moment, I'm a geotechnical engineer working on the railway infrastructure, but we have different departments who work on active travel, highway schemes, the transformation side of, of the railway, where we're trying to electrify the railway to deliver a more sustainable transport system to people, more integrated transport system as well. So it is very much any mode of transport is contained within Transport for Wales. Mm -hmm. And in terms of your specific role on the railways, is that keeping them safe? Are we building more railways? What, what's happening? Everything. So um, it's quite exciting, actually. We are developing um, something called the South Wales Metro. So mm -hmm. anything north of Cardiff Queen Street, where we'll be providing additional stations, upgrading agent infrastructure, providing electrification as well. So we're able to get people from the valleys up to Cardiff quicker with more services as well. So it's a really exciting time to kind of be at this organisation where we are really trying to impact, you know, the Welsh population for the, for the better. So it's really exciting. 
How do you think, Emily Rose, the way we travel is changing and how does it need to change? Well, I think we've seen after COVID that we've seen a lot more people actually cycling and walking and actually kind of moving away from the way we use our cars. So there's definitely been kind of a reliance more on public services, for example, trains, buses, to get people from A to B. I definitely think that as we move forward, we need to have a fully integrated system where we're able to kind of jump off our bikes onto a train to be able to kind of move away from using our cars to have a fully environmentally conscious system in place. Yeah, can can I just pause there? Because I don't want to sort of be nodding along without having understood (laughs) that shift because I could imagine that during a pandemic, people might want to stay in their own bubble of a car. So why were they piling onto the buses and trains? I think I might be being a bit slow here. I think for Transport for Wales, we offered actually like NHS staff free public transport during this this time. So I know there was a lot more kind of encouragement for people to use our services. Thankfully, a lot of us were working from home. So I know that the railway was particularly quiet. It did give kind of those those really vital workers the ability to kind of test out our system if they haven't used before to kind of show as well, almost an incentive to kind of say this is, you know, it actually works really well. And we can all kind of use this by being conscious as well about our, our emissions. So Yes, very interesting times. <laughs> so on a practical note, yeah. what is your top piece of advice for how to influence someone who technically is more senior than you and has more power than you? It's very tricky, <laughs> I won't lie. Um, I think it is being upfront and honest about what you really want to achieve and to be realistic about those as well, to take that advice of what they learnt, but also to kind of give a different perspective as well. I've seen before where it can almost be seen as stepping on people's toes by addressing, you know, issues. But again, it's kind of seeing, well, we all have something to add and diversity is key in decision making. So by having, you know, a different voice, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing because we can look at things from a different perspective. Excellent. I would love to ask Scott that same question. You weren't always a chief exec. You will have been an influencer uh, on your journey. What's your top tip to trying to influence someone who's actually more powerful than you? Well, I'm always very much in favour of evidence. And I don't think evidence is used enough in business, to be honest. My experiences over too many years now is that people's perspectives and personalities and positions seem to actually dominate decision making. And I think we're now in a world where we have so much data available and so much business intelligence available that actually people coming forward, regardless of hierarchy, with something which actually demonstrates where that perspective has come from is a very powerful thing. Mm. Uh, And I'm certainly looking for more of that in, in my business. I foresee my business being far more about data driving decision making surrounded by personality and perspective but Mm -hmm. actually being the bedrock to the future so is there still room for leaps of imagination then scott in your (laughs) world of influence oh there's there's always room for that and and actually that's something else probably i should have mentioned earlier in terms of covid is that the agile working perspective where that's going to be going for the business is really important because it's something we you know felt through COVID in terms of people working from home, which isn't necessarily just, that's not agile in itself, but it's working from distance. We've sort of been trying to play in this area of more remote connectivity and how do you allow creativity to flourish from a distance and over digital means, which isn't so easy. I like to see people and, and you know, see bouncing off ideas. So I think, yes, there is definitely creativity and I'm looking to the future of this business, um, of course, if my board agree, to be creating a, a hub based approach for an office environment, which is all about people coming in, having a social creative space to share time, to retain the bond of that business, 
to have that space to be together, whilst then having the flexibility to be out, being in the right place to create the right solutions for our customers, not yeah. in a corporate office environment. That's an interesting hybrid. Um, Emily Rose, you must have been reflecting on the pros and cons of offices doing a bit less travel yourself over the last few months. Yes, definitely. I kind of COVID's you know, obviously been a bad thing, but also a good thing in terms of demonstrating our flexibility within the workplace as well. So um, it's had its challenges, you know, kind of missing that personal contact, but it's definitely kind of shown that there needs to be a lot more trust where people working from home, you know, people do have lives outside the workplace. And I think COVID has definitely demonstrated that, that the importance of kind of putting that first and mental health, that's been a massive kind of learning curve for our organisation as well is actually to maybe take a step back sometimes from business but just to ask someone how are you doing um, and that's been a really important thing during this time yeah and i can absolutely i can literally see scott nodding in agreement with that and um, i'd like you to ask each other a question could be as broad or as specific as you like scott what would you ask emily rose well emily rose i think you've you said something which really challenged with me which is about you're talking about your experience as a young female working in a professional environment and my thoughts immediately turn to you know okay what young females do i have in senior positions within my business and and actually we do have a, a number you know i have an executive director of property who does all the development and asset management who's female and reporting to her as a head of development who's also female so very much out on site working the mucky boots as well as doing all the specification type work internally but am i strategically going about trying to make sure i've got a balanced workforce and how would young females look at my sector i suppose and think yes that's something i really want to go into so it's a bit of a sort of question back to you how would you want businesses to go about this i think that um having people for people to be able to relate to in businesses to kind of see someone um as an engineer or within your business to kind of say actually that that is something that i could do you know Going to schools is something that is really important to encourage a kind of next generation of female engineers. And it kind of gives us relatability as well. I also think as well, like moving forward, the workplace definitely needs to encourage, you know, we have the mandatory HR training, which is kind of like a tick box exercise, but it's not enough. For me, definitely unconscious bias training is something really important to the workforce. I mean, you know, because I hear sometimes, oh, I'm really inclusive because I don't say it out loud, but it's kind of these decisions that are made sometimes, which you don't actually realise you're doing. So I think to kind of make people want to be part of an organisation to show that their commitment, but also that, you know, there's unconscious bias training within within that place. Thank you. That's really good. Emily Rose, what would you ask Scott? Well, it's very interesting that you're in the housing sector and obviously you have a kind of a massive part to play ensuring of Wellbeing for Generations Act, ensuring, you know, going forward decarbonisation. What are the things you're currently doing at the moment, for example, to add biodiversity, to reduce flooding impacts in your new builds and existing infrastructure? Emily Rose, just to remind us what that encompasses, and Scott knows, but just for our listener, uh, when we say biodiversity. When we build houses, we look at houses, we'll just build a house, but it's actually adding kind of that wildlife corridors in so we can add like say wildflowers in bat boxes something that doesn't create a house but kind of creates kind of an attraction to the wildlife as well got it no forgive me scott over to you <laughs> no no i'm glad you asked for that point just to make sure i answer the right question so, uh <laughs> no this it's a really good question alongside that sort of modern methods of construction stuff i talked about earlier we, we do we do have a lot of greening work that takes place both in our new developments and our existing homes so for our new developments if i give you an example we've got planning consent 
to build on City Road in Cardiff, the town centre end, and it's going to be a green tower. So if I can conjure up an image for you of the Bosco Verticale, right, in Milan, uh, which is this wonderful greenscape of a high rise, which all the up and coming people are living within, it's going to be a downgraded version of that. Okay, so I'm just trying to bring you back to reality. <laughs> However, what it's going to do is it's going to very much play into what you've said, which is it's going to reduce pollutants in the air, you know, Cardiff City Centre, plenty of pollutants, so we want to reduce pollutants in the air for the people living there. It's going to be great for actually capturing and retaining uh, the environmental efficiencies of living in a good quality built home anyway. It's going to allow some wildlife to be part of that. It's going to encourage insects and others to be part of that. We're going to capture water and reuse it and so on and so forth. So we're very much in that field and also we've got another scheme in, in Bridgend uh, called Sunnyside which is part of a healthcare centre we're building, but also part of a residential scheme. And that residential scheme is going to be set up for play rather than cars. So the road infrastructure and everything else is not going to be about where can you put your car on a curb. There aren't going to be curbs. It's going to be a flat structure for people to be able to play in. Actually, we're trying to remove cars from it. And we've got wildlife areas there as well, which we're very much hoping the school is going to be using for its forest schools uh, type of work. And we've also got uh, areas for planting and growing. And we've got edible fruit trees because we're trying to encourage that. So we look at it very much from a health and well-being perspective when we're designing anything uh, for all the reasons you said. That's fantastic. I want to move this one fantastically. <laughs> That's what we want. Okay. So, so I'm I'm very conscious that as we talk about the future of transport or the future of housing, nursing homes, we can talk about the way that things are going to be built differently in future. But I just want to go even bigger picture than that about the whole on a systems level. You know, how is the whole you know area going to evolve? You know, it could be what will nursing homes look like in the future that's totally different from now, or indeed transport systems. But but give me a glimpse of where you think the future of your sector is going, because it is more and it is more than an evolution of materials, isn't it? Emily Rose and then Scott. Um, yeah, I definitely think that um, working with housing organisations, not working in silo, that's the key for us moving forward. Where you know we need to start being collaborative with other organisations to build up, not just seeing the transport sector as a singular thing. We need to actually have it integrated with housing, with local services, with things that actually make people want to. To, to catch a train instead of driving. So being able to provide a service which has meaning to the people of Wales is something that we need to work towards and hopefully we are doing. <laughs> Excellent. Scott, please build on this and add your add, uh, add some more. Yeah, oh, it's a huge question. I agree with, with Emily Rose. There's a very good approach taking place in Wales around the capital region deals, which is a collective of local authorities that work together to actually pick up on what Emily Rose talked about earlier around transportation hubs and their connectivity to jobs and connectivity to where people live and trying to make sure actually that you've got investment staying within um, more sort of regional areas rather than everything being sucked into a centre, uh, but also allowing ease of transportation through the, the wonderful transportation Emily Rose has been talking about to get to the, to the jobs and then come back and spend your money in your region if, if you want to. So I, th I think it very much is that, that much bigger joined up perspective I do think there's there's a big role for us all to play in investing in Wales, investing in Welsh businesses and making sure we keep the Welsh pound building. And I think the SME sector is, is one of those which we need to focus much harder on. So this is small and medium sized enterprise. Sorry, yeah, small and medium sized enterprise, yeah. But um, 
that adds so much to the culture of, of regions, but also to the economy of Wales. And we need to be making sure we're, we're maximising and scaling those types of businesses. But then more generally, in terms of where it goes, I, I think we will be definitely seeing a sector that is creating skill sets for the future generations, which are all about smart and efficient ways of building homes, building them in much quicker fashion so we can in Wales uh, responsibly build at a greater pace, taking on board the exact question Emily Rose asked, which is about how do you create an environment which is going to be there for the future and actually help people living in their areas prosper rather than have a negative impact through um, lots more pollutants and, and detriments to, to the environment. The environment is going to be absolutely the master of everything we, we do from now on. And what about the social aspect, what you've been talking about there, Scott? I wonder to what extent um, housing of the future might be more intergenerational than it has been, or yeah. there might be very good reasons why older people live in older people's spaces. You tell me. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think we've gone full circle on this. Where we are at this moment in time, we're very good at creating specific places for people to live in, which are for certain generations or for certain housing needs. And that cannot be the future because the thing that's coming through loudest at the moment is about social isolation. And the impact of social isolation on an individual is horrendous in terms of life expectancy, if we don't get it right. And the benefits of having a mixed community and people looking out for each other and creating a volunteer society that can go in, provide informal care, shared living environments, so on and so forth, is going to be the way forward. We must ensure that we are creating places which touch all parts of people's lives rather than just the housing need. Yeah, good to hear. Now, um, I want to ask you my quickfire questions that I ask all guests on the lens. The first one is who you'd love to have coffee with. They have to be alive. Emily Rose, who would you sit down with? It would definitely be David Attenborough. I don't want to think about that. Absolutely. So much respect for that man and what he's done. Um, yeah, he's my ultimate hero. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd have to agree with you there. So, David, absolutely. Coffee with him. Wouldn't that be extraordinary? Great choice. Scott, who have you chosen? Um, slightly different. I love storytellers. And so I, I've chosen Tom Jones, would you believe? <laughs> and the reason I've, I've chosen Tom, Tom Jones, I'm going to try and justify this now, is um, not only because he's a good storyteller, and I think you know he, he's evolved himself over many years right, to stay relevant. I like to talk to people who've done that, because that's a hard thing to do. But even better, he seems to have met everyone who's dead as well. So I can, I can sort this on two levels. I meet someone who's alive, which is a question. I find out about Elvis, who's dead. There we go. There Another we go. night of the realm. So Tom Jones, my, 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 as our listener might <laughs> be thinking. Uh, that's a great choice. So um, how about a book that you think is worthy of a wider audience? Doesn't have to be a business book. Scott first. I have to say, listening to sort of, I don't know, um, Melinda Gates or Richard Branson or someone is far more of my enjoyment than reading a book. However, I did read a book recently given to me by Mike Tyson called The Undisputed Truth, which challenged me on many, many different levels of my moral compass. And it wasn't a comfortable read, but there were elements in there about his upbringing and the impact on deprivation uh, and the way it impacts on you mm -hmm. and on um, the psychology of sport and the relationship he had with his coach and the impact of that on his mind and decision making. There's those two little bits out of that yeah. I would recommend. The rest, I think, Ooh, so tread carefully. And then we're saying. talking about Mike 
Tyson the boxer, of boxer, course. Yes. Famously said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Yes, Deary me. Uh, it's, a, it's a very unusual and interesting recommendation. Thank you, Scott. Uh, we link to all of these. Emily Rose, what's on your bookshelf? Oh, quite a lot at the moment. So one that stands out for me is definitely got to be a book called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. You know, as a white person, recognising my privileges. And obviously, we've seen a massive movement movement at the moment. And, you know, it is an uncomfortable read, you know, to kind of understand, you know, that systemic racism within society. But it definitely has kind of opened my eyes to, you know, how I could be an ally and how I can actually be a better person myself. So mm-hmm. that would definitely be a book that I would recommend. Says- Emily, that's that's a great choice. Is there something which you consciously did as a result of reading it or did differently, perhaps? Yes, yeah, so I think it was kind of just like a bit where that unconscious bias where, you know, people can kind of say, oh, I'm not biased. But again, it's that kind of unconsciousness where you don't actually realise you're being biased. So for me, it was kind of just being a bit more inclusive to everyone, you know, and it really did kind of make me think about my privileges as a white person, but also kind of the way I was, you know, in education when I was in school learning about certain things where a lot of the really, really important matters weren't discussed. So I'm a Scouts volunteer myself. So kind of seeing how I can put rivaling into the actions of young people so they can be more aware. Yeah, fantastic. Why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. We will link to that as well. Uh, final question to you both, a piece of advice for your younger self. Emily, what would you say? Where are we going back to and what do you say? I think going back to where I might in the past might have been kind of scared to raise my voice, you know, kind of being scared to kind of have an opinion just because the environment that I've, I've been in in previous work, um, it would definitely kind of be bold and be brave. Um, just kind of go for it. And that is the bit of advice I'd give to youngest, my younger self. <laughs> Excellent advice. Scott, how about you? Where are we going back to? Um, I think mine is about just trying to make sure that I don't see life as a pre-described pathway because you do GCSEs, you do A-levels, you go to college, you get a job, blah, blah, blah. I think for my younger self, I'd say, look, please find yourself. Spend time doing things which are not on that natural pathway that everyone expects you to follow. Stretch yourself, meet new people, explore new places, and then you'll understand who you are and what will make you the, the great person you'll be moving forward. Fascinating. And Emily, because we have the ability to see each other today, I can see you agreeing with that. Yes, oh, definitely. Um, yeah, I think, you know, when you're, you're in school, you're kind of made to do certain subjects and it's kind of almost, you know, you're 14 years old, expect to know what you want to do for your career. And life doesn't work that way. You know, it is very much kind of go with what you're passionate about. And that's key. You know, your happiness is kind of the key decider. You know, you've really got to be passionate about what you do for a job. Plenty of time to be serious. Exactly. (laughs) Love it. Well, on that note, and by the way, I'm taken by Scott's uh, affection for podcasts. And I just want to say a huge thank you to you as our listener for sharing the word about this conversation, which I have hugely enjoyed. Please do spread the word across all of the channels that you use on LinkedIn or Twitter, Instagram and other places. Um, I'm going to thank our guests. And I want to say, of course, from Link Cymru and from Transport for Wales. But I do really get the impression I have interviewed today uh, two extraordinary individuals. So on a personal note, Scott Sanders, Emily Rose Jenkins, thank you for joining me. Thank Thank you. you It's been great. Really enjoyed it. Brilliant. You've been listening to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. 
If you like what you've heard, then please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps and makes a difference. Thank you. Also, we're on Instagram at The Lens Podcast or on the Business and the Community website. The Lens is produced and directed by Aurelia Salitskater, music and editing by Giselle Hall and Will Francis, and our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>